I want you to take a moment with me and pretend that you're uh, a fly on a wall in a home that's not your own, um, and you're in the living room. Uh, this is going to drive me nuts. <laughs> now I'm doing that Geico commercial. <laughs> this thing. Uh, anyway, it's a home that's not your own, and uh, there's a husband and wife, and they're sitting on a couch in the living room, and uh, they're having an intense conversation, and there's a Kleenex box between them that is uh, mostly empty. At the beginning of the conversation, it was mostly full. The husband is trying to talk to his bride, and he's by no means shy about confessing his own sins, and he's uh, confessing that um, he hasn't been everything he's needed to be throughout their marriage. And uh, she, on the other hand, is pouring out the frustrations of an entire marriage and all these disappointments, all these unfulfilled hopes, all these resentments, just they come flooding out in this one big conversation. And the husband is just left speechless. Um, he was just unaware of just how much his spouse's heart was hurting he got really not many words that he can say. He just comes up with these words. Sweetheart, I don't know that I can fix this, but I know God, and I know that he can heal this. Well, when those words come out of his mouth, she snorts. One of those sarcastic laughs, and she looks down, stares off into space, she stops making eye contact with him anymore, and the conversation is over. I set that up because that's where I feel like we find Abraham and Sarah this morning, at the beginning here of Genesis 18. And um, the title of today's message is, God Injects Hope into a Hopeless Situation. So please follow along with me as I read our text this morning, Genesis 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham that is, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I just pray this morning, God, that, um, that we all would learn um, what you would have us to learn from this passage. Lord, we have Abraham, we have Sarah, we have you in this passage, Lord, and, and I pray, God, that we would learn what you'd have us to learn from Abraham, that we would learn what you'd have us to learn from Sarah's life and responses, and we would learn about you from uh, you intervening in this scene, 
Lord. And God, I pray that you would um, just work in such a way that, um, uh, that I would not get in the way uh, of what you would want to um, communicate um, and that you would just speak to each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we learned, well, I'm just going to say real quick, um, I'm using this thing today, and it just went off while I was praying for some reason, and I don't know why, so if something crazy happens, I might have to like, uh, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's that it went, it said like the internet thing. I've got to say, yeah. (laughs) But um, anyway, last week we learned that 13 years had passed since Ishmael was born um, in Genesis 17. And at this point, we notice that Abraham is now 99 years old and Sarah is now 89 years old. And when God met Abraham in Genesis 17, God told Abraham this same thing, that this time next year you're going to have a baby boy through Sarah. But in 17, the Bible doesn't tell us that Sarah heard any of God's conversation to Abraham or what Sarah's reaction to all of that was. Well, numbers being what they are and the time it takes to have a baby, we know that this event in chapter 18 um, had to occur very quickly on the heels of what occurred in Genesis 17. And so very shortly after God confirmed his covenant with Abraham in chapter 17, um, it couldn't have been many days or, or, or many weeks later that we find Abraham sitting outside of his tent, having his afternoon siesta, and uh, he was just sitting there relaxing and lounging, And it says that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. And oftentimes when you see that little formula in Scripture, behold, it means something big is about to happen. And uh, we know that something big is about to happen. And uh, as we'll come to find out, God is right on time, as always, to accomplish his will. So Abraham looks up, and what does he see? But three visitors coming his way. And one of those visitors is the Lord. And um, as we talked about before, when you see this word Lord in the Old Testament, and it's capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh himself. Um, And as Eric alluded to last week, the theological term for when God takes on human form is a theophany. And that's what's happening here again, just like when the the Lord uh, came to Abraham in Genesis 17. But the first thing I want us to notice and learn from Abraham in this encounter is Abraham's hospitality. So picture this, and keep in mind that Abraham is 99 years old. Um, Abraham is lounging, and he sees three men approaching from far off, and he jumps up in a hurry, and it says he ran to meet them. And I want us to notice Abraham's energy. The writer's emphasizing the point of Abraham's supernatural vitality over and over again, Um, In verses 2 through 7, it's talking about he ran here and he ran there. And it's literally the the Hebrew word for run and run fast. So we know that Abraham was not lallygagging around. He was hurrying from one place to the next. And also notice that when Abraham met these men, two of whom later we find out who are angels, and one who is the Lord, he didn't just bow, but he bowed all the way to the ground. Now, I think that... um, I would be happy to be able to do that if I was 69 years old. Um, My boys used to do a a workout called Insanity, where you make it a habit of just throwing yourself to the ground and get jumping back up. And um, that's not easy. I think I tried it once and said, no, this this workout's not for me. Um, But here Abraham bows all the way to the ground. He's 99 years old and gets up. And so he's in a perpetual hurry. He's a whirl of energy. He's like, quick, quick, do this, do that. And, um, and then when it's time for his three guests to eat, he doesn't call on one of his servants to be the waiter for them. He, he ends up being the waiter himself, um, which is odd, you know. And um, so Abraham went out of his way to make his guests feel welcome, and he met their needs in a practical way that would be refreshing to them. So here's two points that I want us to to capture if you're taking notes this morning, but here's two points about hospitality that we can learn from Abraham. One, 
Hospitality involves effort to make others feel welcome. Hospitality involves effort to make others feel welcome. And we talked about this, uh, I think it was last week, or no, on fifth Sunday? We talked about, well, we were talking about goals for the church this year. We were talking about hospitality, and we we mentioned the the verse in Romans 12. And um, actually, the the, uh, verse there says, seek to show hospitality in Romans 12. Seek to show. And if you just think of those words, it's, they're like action words. You have to seek to show hospitality. It's, it's, um, it's something that you are, you need to involve effort to, to be a hospitable person, to be a hospitable, to show hospitality. It's something that you apply effort to do, and that's what Abraham was doing here. Um, the second point about Abraham's example to us is hospitality involves meeting needs in a way that provides refreshment to others. It wasn't like Abraham was um, providing them something that they didn't need. It it wasn't like he was providing them something that um, wouldn't be a benefit to them. I guess that'd be another way of saying it. He he, he met needs that provided a benefit to them. And and there's a verse, if you want to reference this, 2 Timothy 1.16, where Paul spoke of a man named Onesiphorus, and he said, Onesiphorus often refreshed me. And I like that word, um, refreshed. Um, so when you, when you think about being hospitable here in 2020, think about um, meeting needs for other people in a way that they would go away refreshed. If you have someone in your home, think about someone leaving your home in a way that they're like, boy, that was just refreshing, you know, to, to have that, enjoy that time together. The second thing I want us to notice and learn from Abraham is Abraham's generosity. And this is, this is quite amazing here. So you'll notice that he promised them a little something. Let's look at verse four. It says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. So that's what Abraham promised. Now let's see what Abraham delivered. This is Abraham's idea of a bite of bread. And um, uh, actually the Hebrew word there for that little morsel, that bite of bread, it literally is a bite, a little bite of bread. Um, but this is what Abraham delivered. So um, he says, he goes to Sarah and he says, quick, mix up three seas of fine flour. And I'll get in a minute what a sea of flour is, but I don't want to skip over the word fine here, fine flour. So Abraham wasn't talking about, hey, Sarah, make some bread and just use our run-of-the-mill flour here because I don't want to use up the fine flour. That's for us. Um, he tells her to use the fine flour. Um, and that's that word fine, it's the Hebrew adjective that God used to define the type of flour that he required for offerings, um, offerings to him. So it was the best flour. It was the sifted flour, the best flour in the house. And what we notice here is that Abraham wasn't being a cheapskate. Um, now about a sea of, what a sea of flour is, and I don't know if you guys have ever look this up yourselves, or maybe you have a study Bible that tells you this, but um, one C was about seven quarts. Um, I had to look it up. I didn't know. But um, so I didn't even know how much, you know, you need to make a loaf of bread. So I kind of just used a calculator and calculated this. Three C's comes out to about 93 dry cups of flour. And I wanted to actually figure out how many pounds that was. So that comes out to about 25 pounds of flour. Hey, Sarah, quick, quick, mix up about 25 pounds of flour. Um, And uh, so that comes out to 93 dry cups of flour, which would make about 30 loaves of bread. So what Abraham delivered went more like this to his guests. Would you like a bite of bread? Here, take 10 loaves, and you take 10 loaves, and you take 10 loaves. And, um, but he's not done yet. So he runs to the herd and he says, see, see that veal calf over there? Slaughter it and quickly prepare it. Now, 
Um, I tried to look up, you know, how much, how much does a veal calf weigh? And I don't know, but I, yeah, I couldn't really come up with something. But you, you know it's a lot, well over 100 pounds, probably over 200 pounds, right? The, the, the point is, um, it was more than enough to feed three people for a long, long time, let alone one meal. So in essence, they came to the Fogo de Chao of Abraham. It was an all-you-can-eat meat buffet. Um, and then we see that he gets choice dairy items, fresh milk and curds. Now, when I got to that part, I was like, okay, Abraham, you were doing well until you got to the curds. Um, so I don't know what the curds were, but if they were like cottage cheese or something, I thought like, I don't know if you ever have guests in your home and you're like, hey, here, here's some cottage cheese. Um, I'm kind of kidding, but uh, I don't think that we typically think that that's like a delicacy that we'd want to give our guests, right? Um, anyway, uh, I am kidding. Uh, I looked this up and there's some commentaries that they think this was a common Middle Eastern dish that was this uh, yogurt type substance that people would dip their bread and their meat into and they claimed that it was quite yummy. So um, it wasn't cottage cheese and since I probably just offended everyone who likes cottage cheese, I, I will say that I actually like cottage cheese myself as long as I can mix it with fruit, not plain. <laughs> um, and actually, I got to like it when I was in college for some reason, probably because when you're in college, you just eat, eat anything. Um, so Abraham's generosity involves giving of his very best to his guests, and it involves giving more than what is needed, not worrying about what is, his giving is doing to his bottom line. So here's the two things we can learn about generosity from Abraham. Generosity involves giving your best to others. And uh, as a reference verse, you can put down this verse, Luke 6.38, and it's a great verse. It's this verse where um, it says, Give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And it says uh, something about, to the measure that you give, it shall be given to you. And, um, and then the second point, generosity involves giving more than what's expected. And then uh, we have this reference verse, Acts 20, 35, where um, the disciples are um, thinking back of when Jesus said, and the Lord said to us, it is better to give than to receive. So that's one way to be a generous person, those two points. So let's take a pause here in the text and look at it from the outside looking in. Here's what we see. We see an elderly, elderly man with supernatural vitality. Here's a man who's running around. Um, he's bowing to the ground. He's serving tables. He's energized. We see a generous man who's offering expensive gifts to his guests. He's eager to please. But if you notice, we also see a singular man whose wife is not participating. Yes, she cooked up the bread as he, because he asked her to, but beyond that, she did not extend any of the same hospitality. She, in fact, stays inside the tent, and they're eating outside the tent under a tree. Um, now, Abraham is living the fulfillment of God's first promise to him and that he is being a blessing to others, especially in light of the fact that one of his guests is the Lord himself. But for all the world, Sarah is not seeing what he is seeing. She's not on board, it appears. She's sitting in the tent, letting discontentment from years of unfulfilled promises get the best of her. Now, we talk about exegesis and eisegesis and not wanting to read things into the text. So it doesn't really tell us this. So I'm going to preface this next part by saying that this is just my opinion based on what I think I'm seeing as an outside observer to what's recorded. But in going back through Genesis 17 and 18 over and over again, I thought, why would God return to Abraham and deliver to him the same promise that he just said to him not more than not many weeks earlier? He just gave him a promise in Genesis 17, and now Genesis 18, 
He comes back and he gives them the same promise. Um, so this is just my opinion. <clears throat> what I think I'm seeing is that God spoke a promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. And I would think as a husband that Abraham shared that promise with Sarah. But as we see, we're going to see on Sarah's response in a few minutes here in Genesis 18, that she probably didn't buy into it. And for sure, Abraham uh, had that conversation, but perhaps in Genesis 17, after he had that conversation, heard the promise, shared it with his wife, it added more tension to their relationship. And I'm not sure that she was in a state of mind or had the faith to hear about another promise that she would put her hopes in, only to, in her mind, be let down again as she's been waiting and waiting and waiting for this promise to be fulfilled for so many years. And in her mind, it's not being fulfilled. Um, now, of course, we know that God was not at all letting anybody down. But in this situation, the truth of his ways being higher than her ways is explicitly seen. But we see it in hindsight, and Sarah did not have that benefit. And so now the Lord comes to visit again, and what I see is two people whom have a strained relationship compensating in different ways to, in a sense, keep the Lord at arm's length so that they would not have to face the reality of their situation. And this is why I think God came back in Genesis 18, because in, in his grace, he will not let us stay in our helpless and hopeless situations. And God knew that they were in this situation and he came back to provide reassurance to them um, and to get Sarah on board. That is why I think God made this follow-up visit. And regardless of whether Abraham was trying to deflect the Lord from getting too close to touching a sensitive area that needed healing by rushing all over the place and being too busy to slow down for a serious conversation, the Lord would not take the bait. And regardless of whether Sarah thought she could keep the Lord from getting too close to touching a sensitive area that needed healing by hiding in the tent, the Lord would not take that lying down either. So as I stated earlier, I said, as we'll come to find out, God is right on time, as always, to accomplish his will. And this is a statement that <clears throat> is probably the, the key takeaway God is such a gracious God to us, he will not let us stay stuck in a place that gets in the way of accomplishing his purposes in and through our lives. I'm going to state that again. God is such a gracious God to us, he will not let us stay stuck in a place that gets in the way of accomplishing his purposes in and through our lives. So God knows this. He knows what's happening here. He knows what's happening between Abraham and Sarah, and he comes back, and he's going to intervene in the situation. I think it's significant that the Lord is the one who initiates a conversation with Abraham um, that broaches the subject of his relationship with Sarah. It's not like Abraham used the opportunity like, oh, the Lord came back to see me. I can, I can now say, hey, Lord, can you get Sarah on board? She's really not feeling these promises. You know, Abraham didn't, didn't broach that subject with, with the Lord, but God notices something's up, and he's asked, where's Sarah, your wife? Of course, the Lord knew all along where she was, um, but he let Abraham answer, and he just gave a short answer, she's in the tent. And then I think it's very interesting what the Lord does next. He just goes straight to assuring Abraham of his promise that he just made, perhaps, like I said, a few weeks before, but he adds something. He says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. So in the first promise, God didn't talk about, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. I'm going to be there to see this baby. He just talked about the baby being born. This time he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. So God is saying he's going to personally show up to see this baby of promise. So what are some things we can learn about God's character from this? I'd say one, God is a God who knows what's going on in our lives. 
Number two, God is a God who cares about our well-being. And three, God knows when we need reassurance and encouragement. So I think it's just interesting that God backs up his promise by laying his friendship with Abraham on the line when he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will be holding a bouncing baby boy. Because if you're a friend and you're saying, I'm going to be there to see this baby, I mean, God wouldn't show up if it didn't happen. He's not going to face Abraham and be like, sorry, I was wrong. Um, so based on what we know about pregnancy, right, Sarah is probably most likely to conceive in the next 60 to 90 days. So um, Abraham, I'm sure, is hoping that her heart would change. And God, of course, knows that she's listening to this promise that he's giving. And, of course, she is. We see that Sarah is, as the writer puts it, listening at the tent door behind him. Of course, you know, if we're real, we know that she was intensely eavesdropping. Um, and God knew this, too. Um, in our home, I mean, I'm sure this happened with all of our kids, but Lisa and I could be whispering and... Um, it seemed like my sons had a supernatural ability to hear our lowest whispers. Troy is super at it. Uh, do any of your children have that gift? It's very hard to. We need like a, a room that is a, one of those like soundproof rooms or something. Um, so Sarah hears this prediction, and her first response is to think scientifically. You see... When she heard this promise when she was younger and she knew it was physically possible to get pregnant, she held out hope, right? It was, it was easier for her to hope when she was younger um, and it was physically possible to get pregnant. Um, but the writer here states that Abraham and Sarah were just old and it also says um, that she was faced with the reality that says the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Of course, we know that means to be that her monthly cycle had ceased. So she knew at this point that it was biologically impossible. Um, she's hearing what God is saying. She's hearing this promise again for who knows how many, the, another time, I'll just say. But she's facing this reality that it's biologically impossible for her to get pregnant. Um, she's like, not only are we old, but I am beyond childbearing capability. And I want us to notice that in response to those two observations, Sarah scoffs. And her scoffing is full of resentment. She said, after I am old and worn out and my Lord is old. She doesn't say that he's worn out because she sees him running around, driving her crazy. Um, but she says, shall I have pleasure? In other words, I'll paraphrase it like this. I'm never going to be happy in this life. I gave up on that hope a long time ago. How dare you come in here and tell me that I can have this hope when I've been hearing this promise over and over and over again for years and years and years. I hear all this talk. I see nothing happening. And now that I'm old and my best years are behind me, now you say I'm going to have pleasure? Psst, not happening. So what the writer is trying to communicate here is that Sarah is at a point where she is filled with dashed hopes, and now she cynically laughs at the thought that God could actually do something in this impossible situation. I think there's something that we can learn from this, right? Um, God got her to the end of her rope. God, and that's exactly where God wants her, right? I mean, through all the promises, even when she was younger and thought that it was biologically possible, God's plan all along was that she would come to the end of her rope um, with no hope in earthly, to put no hope in earthly or human means, but God alone. 
who's going to use Sarah in his story to be glorified. And as humans, oftentimes we can't see that big picture either. We, we don't see the end. And if you think about it, think of all those years that Sarah had that hope. Then biologically, she lost the hope. And then she still hears this promise and she's like, this is nuts. I, I'm not hoping again. I'm not, I'm not going to be set up to be let down again. Um, but from the Lord's perspective, right? From the Lord's perspective, why did the Lord want to do the impossible relative to how Isaac was born? I don't know all the reasons, but I think one is because he wanted the promised seed to be, for, to be forever known as his provision, that he was the one who provided it, and him alone. So what else did it accomplish? It now would forever stand as an exhortation to his covenant people to believe that God can do the impossible. I mean, now this story would, would live forever, that here's a God who can do the supernatural. Here's a God who can do the impossible. And why would that be important? Because throughout their history, they would need to believe God to do impossible things on their behalf, especially to believe that a Messiah would be born through a virgin which is probably even more impossible than what happened here with Sarah. So don't raise your hands on this one, please. But how many of you have ever had a conversation that gets deep and entangled and you say to the other person some reminder of God's ability to fix it? And they scoff. You just feel powerless in that moment. You're trying to give someone hope, but, but they're not in a state of mind to receive your words. Um, but as I said before, God is such a gracious God to us. He will not let us stay stuck in a place that gets in the way of accomplishing his purposes in and through our lives. So we see here that God is not going to take that lying down. He doesn't just back off when he sees that the response that he's getting isn't, isn't favorable. And I want you to notice um, that he confronts who? This is very, very interesting, right? Um, it says here, so Sarah laughed and she said these things. It doesn't say that the Lord said to Sarah, the Lord actually confronts Abraham. And I think that's interesting, and that's a lesson to us husbands, right? That God confronts her husband. He says in Sarah's hearing, Abraham, why did your wife laugh? What is it, sir, about your life that makes my supernatural intervention seem so implausible? And then here's the kicker. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? So just keep that in mind that all these questions were directed not at Sarah, but at Abraham, which just shows me that there's a responsibility as husbands to lead our family spiritually, to, to, um, to not give up, to not give up in leading our families spiritually, to not throw in the towel, even when our family members um, might react negatively towards our spiritual leadership. We are not to just give up. Um, and I want us to notice that the Lord confronts persistently. Sarah says, I didn't laugh, but the Lord doesn't back off. And he replies, yes, you did. Now, the text tells us why she denied it. It says she was afraid. So fear led to her denial, and fear led to her keeping the Lord at a distance and refusing to let the Lord in. And I just want us to learn from that message as well that any believer here who may have a spouse um, or a family member or a close friend who is an unbeliever, um, ones who continue to reject the great gospel of God, usually that's not done out of hate um, or strife or envy, but usually it's done out of fear. Um, I know when I first got saved in the crowd I was running with, 
Um, uh, they, uh, people that were, I was close to, they, even family members, they wondered what, what's going on in my life. And um, they considered it weird. And there was an awkwardness um, that I wasn't just like they were. And, um, but the point of that is if you find yourself in those situations, just keep talking with God, keep walking with God, keep communing with him, keep fellowshipping, keep praying that the Lord would turn them to himself. And, and, he, and he, he has. He has turned some to himself. You know, whereas at the beginning, they would ridicule. They would, they would think it weird. They would think, you're weird. What's going on with you? Now, we don't have evidence that Sarah repented right here on the spot. We don't have evidence that she said, you were right all along, God. These promises are so. It probably took a process of time for her to come to have some measure of faith in the Lord's promise. But you might want to write down as a reference Romans 4, 19 through 23. From this passage, we see that Abraham did not waver in faith about the Lord's promise at all. And then write down Hebrews 11, 11, and I'm going to read it here. From this passage, we see that Sarah did indeed come around to trust the Lord and believe in his promise. So Hebrews 11, 11 says this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So at some point, she went from this scoffing laugh when she heard this promise to considering him faithful who had promised. Um, I didn't really have this in here. I was thinking about this the whole last two weeks, though. I mean, <clears throat> it, doesn't, it doesn't really say. Perhaps Sarah, like I said, came to that recognition that God was faithful and she came to kind of put her trust in that promise before she conceived. But I just wanted to say this. Even if she didn't, God was going to cause that to happen anyway. And when she saw that she was pregnant and she was holding that baby boy in her arms, I'm sure she was like, God, I'm sorry I didn't trust you. I'm sorry I didn't believe. And there's a verse in Romans 2 that says, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. And so I just, I just wanted to put that out there because sometimes God in his grace and his mercy, even when we don't come around, even when we don't come around to believing, he will, he will follow through and he will do good things for us. And that will turn us at that point. It's his kindness. It's, it's him coming through. And then we kind of look back and we regret, God, I wish I would have trusted you this whole time because now I feel stupid that I didn't, you know. So it doesn't really say how it how that process went with Sarah, but all we know is that at some point she considered him faithful who had promised. So I just want to give four points as we close, okay? Um, number one, is anything too hard for God? And I want us to carry this question with us as we leave this building today and consider that God is asking this question to you in the middle of, of whatever impossible situation you are facing. It could be a circumstance. Um, it could be in the middle of whatever spouse, relative, or friend that you are thinking of is so far from God that the gospel could never reach them. Don't stop praying that God would turn their hearts to himself. It's a grace of God to us that God confronted Abraham with this question so that forevermore we as believers would be confronted with this question so we can go to the Lord with hopeful expectation that he can turn the heart of this person 
that I love so deeply or that he can create beauty from these horrible circumstances I've faced for years or that he will use my seemingly ordinary and mundane life to bring him glory or that he fill in the blank. And that's why when I um, came across, stumbled across those questions to ask yourself for 2020, I really was stirred by that question that said, what impossible thing will you pray for in 2020? And there are just so many impossible things that we should pray for. Um, now, I'll admit, you know, when we pray for impossible things, we might be like, God, I know you can do this, but my heart is saying right now that you can't. Help me to believe that you can. Um, and I think that was part of Sarah's journey um, in the days and weeks after the Lord left that day. Um, I think that she prayed a prayer like that, perhaps. Um, but as we approach the throne of grace, which we're told to approach in a bold manner, never forget that if God could give Sarah a baby against every biological reality, he can do whatever supernatural, miraculous, too hard thing that you can ask or think. In fact, what's amazing is we know in Ephesians it said he can do beyond what we ask or think. So take that promise to him also. Number two, resentment blinds us to God's purposes. You know, here's Sarah sitting in the tent. She's got a 99-year-old husband running around getting a meal that could feed an army um, for three people. And she's sitting in her tent stewing. She can't see what's right in front of her face because she's been so eaten up with resentment and bitterness and anger over God's unfulfilled promise to her. She thought there was no way that God could actually make this work. Um, as you know, she tried to engineer it herself, right, with a slave woman. Um, <clears throat> and you know how that went, right? That created this love triangle that was making her life miserable. And then we'll, we're going to find out in Genesis 21 that she hated every second of that. And all of that resentment piled up in her heart, and she could not see God's purposes. Um, it's, just, it's just a human condition, whether you're a believer or unbeliever alike, that when we allow bitterness to creep into our hearts and minds, we cannot see what's going on around us because we're so focused. We're just focused on that thing that's causing us to be bitter about it. And even sometimes a concerned believer will come alongside us and say, don't you see? God is actually blessing this situation. God is actually using this for his glory. And you snort and you stare off into space because it's easier to fuel the resentment than to turn it over to the Lord. And so I would say to you, if you find yourself in this situation, I don't think this sort of thing is something that goes away easily. It's not, it's not easy. Um, but number one, understand that resentment is fueled by something else, like unfulfilled expectations or, or dis, discontentment or something not going your way or being offended by someone or affected by someone's wrong actions um, or, or something else even entirely. And it's these things that the Bible addresses of how we respond to these things that we need to turn over to the Lord. And, and again, I know that's easier said than done. And it may be that we need to keep turning it over to the Lord and keep turning it over to the Lord over and over and over again while praying that God would soften our heart. Um, I probably have shared this example before, and yeah, you know, it's, it's not real deep or anything big. It's just job-related. So it's not like it was some big, bad circumstance in my life or something, but one time I was called to work on a project that I couldn't get out of, and I had to report directly to a director at Honeywell there. And um, I just, I, when I got paged 
by the director. I went and talked to my boss first, and I said, what? Why am I getting paged by the director? He said, because she wants you to lead this project. I said, what happened to the other guy that was leading the project? He said, he's out. So I'm like, I said, can I say no? He said, I wouldn't say no. So I'm like, okay. So she didn't like the other guy. He's out. I'm in. I can't get out of it. I don't like this. Doesn't, it's not going to go well. Um, so for three years, I had to report to this director on this project. She had way high expectations. Um, all I could do was just try to survive without getting fired, basically. Um, and, and I remember um, I remember going to church through this time, and this was like the biggest trial going on in my life, but people would encourage me, and actually sometimes people would come alongside me and say, can't you see how God is using this to grow your character or this or that? And depending on my state of mind at the time, I would either kind of reject that or sometimes I could see it, sometimes I couldn't, sometimes I'd be bitter about it. God, get me out of this situation. Why aren't you getting me out of this situation? But anyway, um, uh, eventually I learned to have a, a good attitude about it. Um, and, I, you know, I wish I would have learned to have a good attitude about it sooner than later. Um, and eventually God moved that director to another city. So that, that, was, that was good. Um, so number three, God will never give up on those who are his. God will never give up on those who are his. So God initiated a conversation with Abraham to probe, if you will, to go beyond the surface when he asked, where is Sarah your wife? <clears throat> and I don't think God asked the question like this. I don't think he was just chewing on some bread and said, hey, Abe, where's, where's Sarah today? I picture it more like God looking Abraham in the eyes and saying it with a tone of like, is something wrong? Are things okay between you two? Where is Sarah, your wife? Um, and then God also persists with Sarah. And hallelujah that we have a God who cares enough about us to not leave us in our states of helplessness and hopelessness. Um, Hebrews 13.5 says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, and then in Philippians 1, Paul says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that's what we see here. God was pursuing Abraham and Sarah. He had a work to complete, and he was not going to just um, let it go down the tubes. He was going to work through them, and, um, and he was going to... So he intervened, is what I see happening here in Genesis 18. And then the fourth thing and final point is this. We can have peace with God as we have faith like Abraham did. <clears throat> and if you'll turn with me, we're going to get out of Genesis now. Just, just go to Romans. We're just going to read this last passage in Romans 4. Romans 4. And I'm going to read 18 through 5.1. Okay. In hope, it's talking about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, 
but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with Almighty God. That is probably the best promise in the whole Bible. People long for peace in their lives. Peace in their hearts and minds. Peace with relationships. Um, so many people use so many other methods to experience peace. Um, probably drugs being the biggest. And yet faith in God is the answer. And I like how Eric put it last week when he said, faith is a right response to God's word. God said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Have you responded to those words from God? Have you confessed? Have you believed? So as we prepare for communion, <clears throat> I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads for a few minutes and commune with the Lord before we partake of the bread and the cup. If there are things you need to confess to the Lord, just use this opportunity to do that. Um, if there are things that you want to express to him from your heart, use this few minutes to do that. Um, and I just want to give us a chance to do that before we partake of communion. So let's bow our heads and then, <clears throat> and then I'll, I'll pray.